Brothers and sisters, with your iPad, your mobile device, your Bible, would you open up to Judges chapter 1? Judges chapter 1. And once you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word if you are able to? And before we do that, we are going to pray for God's leading during this time. Judges, you are going to be praying for me. All this preparation, sometimes I still feel extremely inadequate. So, let us pray. Father God, you know the beginning from the end. You are the one who watches our going out and our coming in. You set up kings and you take them down. You are the one who speaks to us life-changingly through your word, by your Holy Spirit. And it is for this that we long, that we may be changed as we turn to the pages of your word, your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of Christ speaks to us like this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to, to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into his hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them to be at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek, Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. How's this going to be pre preached, right? <laughs> and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirsh Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Amen and Talamed. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber was for, formerly Kiriash Sefer. And Caleb, Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Please don't name your daughters Aksa. What a name. And Othani. 
Othanel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zepha and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormoth. And Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from there its three sons of Anak, But the people of Benjamin could not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is the name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the, the inhabitants of Bashan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibelium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nehalo, or So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Axlib. Or Hebel, Helblah, or these other names. <laughs> so the Asherites lived, in the, lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, or they lived, so they lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Now, Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in, dwelling in Mount Heres, in 
Ijalon, and in Shalabim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said to them, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they named, they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I need to do this reminder right now. This is going to be a challenging series. One is going to be challenging because this is a historical book. And you're going to read this and go, what? What are you doing? You've got all these weird names. You've got these strange stories. But this is inspired, the inspired word of God. And it will, I promise you, it will benefit you. So we're starting this, this series in probably one of the most disturbing and yet most hopeful books in the Hebrew scriptures, this, this book of Judges. It's one of those books that at times you are just going to shake your head and go, how, how could they, they get this so wrong? You, you just go, really? Really? If things get bad in this book, but I'm going to tell you, they only seem to get worse. One degree of bad to the next degree of bad. And if you're trying to find a book in the Bible that illustrates that people are sinful, I've got the book for you. This book just nails it down. Broken people. And, but as dismal as this book is, it's also a book of hope in which we, we can even see ourselves. One Old Testament scholar says that Judges may be one of the most relevant books in for the North American church at this time. The book of Judges. And why? Well, we're going to see that in a little bit. But we're probably going to, I'm going to tell you, we're probably going to go through the following experience a number of times as we read through this book. First, we're going to read this book, and we are going to say to ourselves, they are so bad. They are really screwed up. And I cannot believe that they did that. Time after time, you're going to, it's almost, you're going to feel it like Paul again. It's the same story set to a different tune. Exact same thing. We're just repeating it again. How could they do this? And then after thinking for a minute, you're going to find yourself realize that you are like these people. You are these people. And Judges hits 
uncomfortably close to home at times because we are often like the people that we are going to be reading about week in and week out. You are the people of Israel. Yet it's a book of hope. No matter how bad things got at the time of Judges, God never gave up on his people. Never. This book shows us that God is gracious and he, and he often treats his people not according to how they deserve, but out of his boundless mercy towards them. They should have been decimated. But God shows mercy. The book of Judges reminds us that God's people often disappoint, that human leaders often disappoint, but God's purposes will always prevail. Not because his people are great, but because God is great. So the true hero in the, this book, much like in the book of Daniel, are not the people. The true hero in the book of Daniel, as we found out, was not Daniel. The true hero in this book are not Heroes in this book, all 12 of them, are not the judges themselves, but the true hero is only God and God alone. So let's look at the beginning of this book of Judges, which sets up really, it kind of sets up um, the rest of the story, all the rest of the chapters. And then we are going to be looking at the, the core question, which we need to answer. And then we'll, we will have to answer it again and again and again and again as we walk through this book. So first, we can see in the beginning that there is a hopeful, a hopeful uh, start off here. Israel was in the process of taking uh, possession of the land that God had promised them. And Judges 1, the first two verses says, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who shall go up first to fight the Canaanites? And the Lord said, Judah, I'm choosing you. You get to go first. I have given the land into their hands. So it's, this is, Judah is like, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's take the land. So there, there's promise in, in moving in. And, but there's some background to this passage that we've got to understand. Years earlier, God made a covenant with a man named Abram in Canaan. And he said, to your descendants, I give this land. So all the way back to Abraham. And generations later, God delivered Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt. And when God did this, he told Moses, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. So it's a good land. And God, in Exodus 23, God promised, my angel will go ahead of you and bring you into this land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the desert to the Euphrates River. God is saying, listen, this is what I've got in store for you. Are you ready? And then in Deuteronomy chapter 1, God says, see, I have given you this land. Now go in and take possession of the land that the Lord he swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham. 
Isaac and Jacob and to their descendants after them. And so God has given them this land. It is theirs. And God repeated it over and over. In this first chapter of Judges, we do have a crisis. The death of Joshua, a great leader. But we also have a tremendous amount of hope. We have a God, we have God's promises over and over and over. You, you have people who have seen and heard all that God has done. They have experienced deliverance from the land of Egypt. They've experienced it. And you have people of Israel inquiring of God, who goes first? Which is much better than what happened earlier, like in Joshua chapter 9, when it says that they did not inquire of the Lord. So now they are showing that they are ready to obey God's will. And they understood what God's will is. So the book of Judges starts off in a very hopeful tone. We are taking the land. And they get results too. Verse 4 says that when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Basic. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem, and they also took it, and they put the city to the sword and set it on fire. So it's a promising start. Momentum is moving. And you and I know what this feels like as well. Most of us can think of times in our lives where we are very aware of God's saving act, his healing act, his action in our lives, and we're very aware of it. We feel his power in our lives. And we feel like we are right on the verge of something. God's word really seems crisp. It feels alive. It's, it's moving and it's shaking in our lives. It's helping us rattle off sin in our lives. And we are prayerful. And we have a real sense of relationship with God. And for many of us, that's not where we're at today. So what happened? There's signs of trouble and just to warn you from here on, it's downhill. It's downhill. There, there's a, a hint of a problem in, in the first few verses. God, God told them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, completely destroy them. Completely destroy them. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their God, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, that is a very hard command, but it is a clear command from God. A lot of people have grappled with what it looks like, what, what a holy war looks like, or genocide, because it sounds like God is commanding genocide, doesn't it? Go and kill them all. How could a good God command the elimination of a whole race, including men, women, and children? Are children really to be executed? Are they guilty? 
Why is a good God killing children? Is not this genocide of the worst sort? And I'm going to tell you, it's a hard question to grapple with. And for that reason, in your bulletins, I have given you an insert. Do not read it now. Do not read it now. But read through this. This is a, a sharp man, a seminary professor, Dr. John Currid, who is at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. And sharp. Read it when you get home. We're not going to try to grapple with all of its implications now. But here's the reality. God did command it. And what we have to wrestle with was the fact that they did not do what God commanded. They, they didn't follow through. And the reason they didn't do it isn't because they were trying to be more humane. If you look at verses 5 and 7 of chapter 1, it was there that they found uh, Adonai, Adon, that guy, and they, they fought against him. And what, they, what did they do? They did not do a, a humane thing at all. What did they do? And thumbs. They cut off his big toes and his, his thumbs. They were not being more humane here. They were actually being more barbaric. Instead of killing the king, what did they do? They mutilated him and they brought him to Jerusalem as a trophy. Look at what we have done. But later he died. We have no idea. Maybe it was an infection. You lose two thumbs in that, that age, two toes, dirty roads, the man is out. But they were actually, if you hear his story, this king's story, what did he do? He had, he had all kinds of people eating scraps from his table who didn't have toes and thumbs. They were already becoming like the Canaanites. So after starting off really well, they, they start getting into some trouble. And verse 19 says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains. Why? Because they had chariots of iron. Man, you, you start feeling sorry for these folks. They were facing superior military equipment. Man, they've got all the tools. And then verses 27 and 35 say, But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land and the Amorites were determined to hold out in, in that mountain and their city places. So not only were they facing superior military technology, they were also facing very determined people. You are not forcing us out of our area. And it's not necessarily that the Canaanites had better technology, my friends. Maybe it's they just had more chutzpah, more like stick to it. No way. And then verses 28 to 35 mentioned that many of 
Israel's tribes enslaved the Canaanites and pressed them into forced labor. It seems to be maybe it was a more economical kind of thing or more convenient to make them slaves than to drive them out. We need somebody to care for our vineyards. We need somebody to care for our fields. Why don't we just, instead of killing them, let's, let's use these, these people. Maybe they thought it was just a waste to destroy the nations when they could maybe exploit them instead. And chapter 1 ends at this point. It doesn't give us much evaluation of what, what's happened. It just reports the facts. But at the end of chapter 1, you are left with the realization for a number of reasons that they have not done what God has asked them to do. And most of us live in the real world, right? And we're prepared to accept the fact that things don't turn out the way that we had hoped. But I mentioned that chapter one sets up the course for the rest of the book. They end up living with the consequences with not doing what God told them to do. And it lasts a long time. And the rest of this book, in a way, is the result of what happened in chapter one. G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? And this, this short little book, it, it was a social commentary of his times, is examining capitalism, socialism, education, and many other issues that were going on in his time. And given that we too live in a broken world, and like the Israelites in Judges 1, we are not experiencing life the way that God said it would be, we need to ask the question, what is wrong with this world? If I pulled some of you aside, you'd probably give me a whole list. Man, our world is turning to Marxism, J.B. Pritzker, it's the Democrats, it's the Republicans, it's this issue, it's that issue. And we start, we can list off all these kinds of things. And we have to keep wrestling with what is really wrong with the world. And if, if God really is a good God, then there are really only two possibilities for why our obedience is less than complete and why we live with the consequences of our lack of obedience. And here's the first thing of what is wrong with the world. The first one is circumstances. The Israelites faced some, some pretty tough circumstances. It was rough. The nations are strong. There's more of them than of us. It's not easy to go, against, go into war with people who have iron chariots. These are power, they were powerful weapons, and it's hard to go against even people who are determined. And everywhere the Israelites looked, they had circumstances, circumstances, circumstances that just made it difficult for them to do what God told them to do. It's just hard. Look at, look at the people. Look at their technology. They're determined. Circumstance after circumstance. And the same thing, my friend, happens today. God has clearly said to do certain things, but... Man, these circumstances get in the way. God says, do this. And what do we do? We say, well, we'd like to, but we can't because of our circumstances. 
Let me give you some examples. God says in Proverbs 28, verse 27, those who give to the poor will lack nothing. But those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. I don't know many people who would disagree with the principle behind this verse, right? I think a lot of people would say, man, I, I would like to give to the poor. But. Right? I know it doesn't apply to any of you. Because you're really good at giving to the poor. But. You don't understand, God. COVID has really screwed me over. And we don't know what next week's going to bring. We don't know if there's going to be another total lockdown or anything. So you know what? God, my, my money is really tight right now. If I made more money or things turn around with COVID, man, I will give you more money. I will be faithful to what you command. In other words, our circumstances keep us from doing what God tells us to do for the poor. Or how about this? Few disagree with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says this, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But who here has had a hard time forgiving someone because, man, there's special cases, you know, right? Do you understand? There, there's special cases. We, we agree with Jesus, but man, do you understand what they did to me? I get it, Jesus, but. Or how about with temptation? We know that, some, that something is wrong. In our hearts, we know that it's wrong. But we say, but we say, I can't resist it, doing it, even though I know it's wrong. I, I just can't resist because it is so sweet or it's so good or it feels so right or it's filling some void in my life. In, in a sense, we're, we're right when we say this, that, man, I just, I just can't resist doing it. We, we can't stop sinning, my friends, through sheer willpower. But on the other hand, it is possible to humble ourselves and to get help, to listen to our brothers and sisters, to be faithful to the word of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, a way out so that you can endure it. So you're right. You cannot resist temptation on your own. You don't have enough willpower to say no. But God does. So when we ask the question of what is wrong with the world, we have to admit that in the end, our circumstances, my friends, our circumstances are not the problem. Your circumstances, oh, but COVID, oh, but this relationship, oh, but they hurt me, oh, but I don't have enough money, oh, this. Quit it. Quit blaming the circumstances. 
That's not the problem. Ultimately, circumstances never ultimately are the reason why we fail to obey God. Because God has always been able to deal with any circumstance that we face. God has the power, God has the money to deal with any circumstance that comes our way. Iron chariots are not a problem for God. Strong-willed people are not a problem for God. In fact, some of you are pretty strong-willed, and yet he saved you. Right? Can I at least get an amen? amen. Yeah, because I know you. Listen, listen to this. With iron chariots, this comes from Joshua uh, 23. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations, to this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he has promised. And Joshua had told them earlier, though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. Joshua made that statement before they even entered in. They had not seen one iron chariot in Canaan yet, but Joshua said, listen, when iron chariots come, you're going to be able to drive them out. Our problem is never ultimately our circumstances. Our circumstances are never, never an excuse for disobedience. Never. The real problem actually runs deeper, right? I feel like I could just shut the Bible right now and just say I'm done, right? God himself tells us what the real problem is at the start of chapter 2. Listen to Listen to what he says. The angel of the, of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore your, to your ancestors. I said, this is God saying, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars yet. Yet, you have disobeyed me. You have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. So the Times paper in, in London invited several eminent authors to, to write essays on the theme, what is wrong with the world? And it's been attributed to G.K. Chesterton that his contribution took on a form of a letter and it was probably the shortest and the most accurate reply that they received to the question of what is wrong with the world. And this is his response. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. I'm the problem. It's so easy to point to politicians, isn't it? It's so easy to point to our circumstances, isn't it? It's so easy to point to what they did or what they should have done. What is the problem? 
Well, God says in these verses that the failures of the Israelites and judges and our failure today is not a failure due to circumstances. It is ultimately because we are disobedient. That's, that's the problem. Verse, verse 2 says, yet you have disobeyed me. Of course, the ultimate reason for our disobedience is our sinfulness. But God gives us two particular reasons why they are and we are disobedient in verse 1. God says, listen, I have brought you up out of Egypt. And in the Old Testament, God, this is one of God's greatest saving acts, this, this exodus. When, they, when God brought Israel out of Egypt. And God says that their problem is that they have forgotten his saving act. You have forgotten what I have done. And in the New Testament, God's greatest saving act was where? It was at the cross, right? Where God rescued us from the dominion of darkness, rescued us. And what did he do? He brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. He rescued us and brought us. So when we are disobedient, it is ultimately why? Because you and I have forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten the gospel. It's because we have forgotten God's saving acts towards us. God says that there is something else that we have forgotten. Not just that we've forgotten his saving acts. He says that in verse 1, listen, I will never break my covenant with you. God says that you have forgotten his holiness and his faithfulness. Anytime we are disobedient, my friends, it is because we have forgotten the very character of our God. We have forgotten not just what he did, but who he is. We essentially fail to remember. And God has given us memories, but somehow we Forget. So if the people of Judges 1 had remembered God's saving acts and his unchanging character, then the Canaanites would not have been a problem. And if we remember, my friends, for you, if we would remember what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, and that no matter how many promises God has made, they are ultimately yes in Jesus, then our circumstances, no matter how difficult, how big, how small, how hidden, how whatever they are, they will never be a problem. Our disobedience, my friends, does not come from our circumstances. Our disobedience comes as a result of forgetting who God is and what God has done for us. So we are, you and I, are the people of Judges chapter 1. We have forgotten the victory that Jesus has already won for us. We are like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who has described people as, man, we've been set free, but ultimately what do these free people do? They cower in fear. They stay in their prisons. But there's hope for us. And that hope comes when we remember 
who God is and what he has done. So let me pray for us this morning. Let's pray for us together as a church that, that we, for the times that we do not obey him. Because I, I am sure that there are many times where we corporately as a church have not obeyed. Our circumstances, listen to this, our circumstances, our busy life, our whatever, I don't have time to serve. I don't have, listen, I don't have the resources to give. I, I don't have the time to go. Do you know how many kids I have? Do you know how much work I have? Do you know I am so close to being able to do this or to do that? This would just interfere. But let's also pray for us individually. Let's actually learn from Judges chapter 1 about what is wrong with the world and what, what's wrong with the world is ultimately us. Individually and corporately. What's wrong with the world is that we have forgotten our God who is faithful. So let's pray. Father God.